Thank you for joining us today. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you're about to watch is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point in our series, we have seen the first half of the book. In chapters 1 through 8, Jesus demonstrated through his life miracles and teaching that he truly is the Son of God. And through the second half of Mark, we'll see Jesus establishing his kingdom by going to the cross. Our entire study through the Gospel of Mark thus far is available in our feed. We would love for you to join in. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Amen. Well, good morning, Hope Church family. As you take your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles, whether you have them physically or on an app, and open it up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be there in just a moment. As you're turning to Mark 10, I want to give you a little bit behind the scenes of our preaching ministry. Our teaching team meets every Monday, as some of you may know. In fact, if you're ever sitting around at 8.30 on a Monday morning, go ahead and pray for us. We're in the back room. We're leaning in. We're unpacking the scriptures. We're praying together. And One of the things that we talk about, and really as you stand before a group of people in any way in public speech, you you talk about how to to interest people in what you're saying. Uh, A way to say it is what's the intrigue? How are you going to draw a whole group of people into what you're saying together today? And and it's called intrigue. And I want to go ahead and give you the, the intrigue for today's message. I have studied God's word more and commentaries more, and scholars more for today's sermon than any other sermon I have ever prepared for in my life. I have sat and had more conversations with both men and women. The Bible says there's wisdom and a multitude of counselors. I have sought a multitude of counselors in order to hopefully gain some wisdom as we discuss what we're discussing Today, if I'm being honest, I've, I've lost some sleep over the last couple weeks, not because I don't trust God, but because I understand the weight of what we are going to be talking about today and how heavy it will be for some of you in the room. And most importantly, I have labored hard in prayer over this weekend, knowing that the content of today's text and sermon have far-reaching, family-altering church-changing implications. And oh, by the way, it is a major landmine in 2024 that we are all going to step on today at the 1030 service. I agree with Maximus in the movie Gladiator. Are you not intrigued, Hope Church? If you're new with us, we're studying verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. We've been in it for a few years now. And over the last few weeks, We've been studying and seeing how Jesus teaches the disciples then and the disciples now, namely us, principles of his upside-down kingdom. I encourage you to go back and listen to the last several weeks of our study of the Gospel of Mark. But today we're going to see yet another countercultural upside-down way that Jesus is teaching people that just quite don't understand. I want you to know the text today is going to cause some emotions to be stirred in the room. And so just like I did on Thursday and at the 8.30 service, I actually want to ask the Lord even right now just to prepare our hearts and to protect us as a church as we study his words. So would you just bow your heads for just a moment? I want to go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. 
I pray right now that as we open your word, you would open our hearts and our ears. Every person in the room, every person watching online, thank you for the truth that can set us free. Would you just take a moment right before I say amen and just ask the Lord very simply, Holy Spirit, speak to me today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us today in Jesus' name? Amen. Some of you know we take time in our service every week as a church to pray. We carve out some time to pray. And I felt led in light of where we're headed in the text today to actually reserve that time for the end of our service. And so we're gonna, we're gonna take some extended time after the message just to, to pray and respond to how God moves in our service. But first, let's jump in. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Here is God's word. And he, that's Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It is not lost on me that this is the text in God's sovereignty that we are preaching the weekend after Valentine's Day. (laughs) In fact, Thursday was the day after Valentine's Day. All jokes aside, I think it's really important for us to understand this is one of the reasons why we convictionally believe in preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. For 23 years, we as a church have preached through books of the Bible. Not all the time. We'll stop and do some sermon series here and there like the one we're starting next week. But primarily, we like to find ourselves going verse by verse through books of the Bible. Why? Because when you do that, you can't avoid the hard texts. I just want to submit to you today, church, the hard texts are good for us to wrestle with. So look at your neighbor and say, here we go. Some of you are like, here we go. (laughs) Every time we gather as a church, there's a ton of diversity among us. We have cultural diversity, generational diversity, but also diversity when it comes to relationships. This is our largest service. I understand in this room right now, maybe watching online, we have single people. We have people that that have been married. We have people that have been divorced. We have people that have been widowed. And so I understand that I'm speaking to a a broad, broad group of people here today. And I just need you to know, I've prayed that God would meet you wherever you are. In fact, our whole staff got together on Monday in our staff meeting and just prayed over this message, not only here, but at our Henderson congregation and our Boulder City congregation. No matter where you fall today, we're asking the Lord to speak through his word. And before we jump into the text, allow me to give you just a few more pastoral pleas. I have three pastoral pleas I want to give you. Here's the first one. I want to ask you to trust God's word today, even if it's uncomfortable and honestly 
bucks up against what you've believed in the past. God has spoken in his word and I'm gonna ask you to trust it. Second pastoral plea, and this is for all the married people in the room. Married people, listen up. Do not try to be the Holy Spirit for your spouse right now, okay? Don't do it. It's just gonna end badly for you. It's gonna be an awkward car ride home. No elbowing, no side eyeing. Okay, this is not the time for that. Here's my third and final pastoral plea. I wanna ask all of us to listen with our hearts and Bible open to what I have to say and wait to, wait to hold any judgment until you've heard all I have to say. But more important than what I have to say, it's what God in his word has to say because I believe there's some emotions that will stir up in the next 30 minutes or so. And we pray that God's grace would be sufficient for you today as we study his word, amen? So let's dive in. What's going on here in verse one? Jesus and his disciples are on the move again. We've already said it, but they're on their way to Jerusalem where the culmination of Jesus's life will happen. He will be wrongly accused. He will be nailed to a cross for the sin of the world and he will rise again three days later. And it says, as they're on their way, as was his custom, he began to teach. Just always wanna remind you, Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. He loved helping people see the kingdom of God. The other characters in this story, in contrast, are the, the Pharisees are these religious know-it-alls who hated Jesus and his upside-down kingdom teaching. They wanted power and control, and Jesus was a disruptor in their domination of people. So we see what they always are doing in Jesus' life here in verse 1. They came to test Jesus. Notice, they were asking questions, but they had no desire to learn. They came to trap Jesus. Verse two, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he responds with another question. He said, what did Moses say? Now, just to note, as you read the Bible, anytime Jesus asks a Bible question, it's not because he does not know the answer, okay? He wrote it. If he's asking a Bible question, like we see here in verse two, it's because he's trying to lead them somewhere. He always is doing that. They answer him, they say, well, Moses, verse four, allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. I want us to see this is actually true. What they're quoting is the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here's what Deuteronomy 24 says and what they're quoting. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because this is very important, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, it's really important to understand the ancient context of what we're looking at here. When you think of the ancient Jewish world, there were really two schools of thought when it came to what indecency meant. If it's, if it's giving you a permission for divorce, it's very important to understand what indecency meant. There were two primary schools of thought, two leading rabbis who led these schools of thought. The first rabbi is a rabbi named Shammai. Everyone say Shammai. Shammai. Sound amazing. Shammai taught that indecency referred to sexual indecency. Namely, if a husband or a wife committed sexual indecency or sexual unfaithfulness, then he or she could be Divorce, this was the more conservative view. But there was another rabbi who led a, a lot of people and had a, a school of thought, and that is Rabbi, rabbi Hillel. Everyone say Hillel. Hillel. 
He was on the other side of the aisle, if you will. And he said that indecent really meant anything that you wanted to put in the indecent category. This was very broad, as you might imagine. She has some indecent behavior as far as you're concerned. Divorce her. You felt like her self-care has kind of fallen off lately? Divorce her. You've noticed a lack of cooking skills in the kitchen? Divorce her. Listen, it sounds like I'm joking, and it's honestly a little cringy to say in front of a group of people, but that's actually what Hillel thought. We have record of Hillel saying, if she consistently burns the bread, you may divorce her. I want to ask you, which of these two schools of thought do you think was most popular, Shammai or Hillel? Hillel. Why? Because it was the easy way out. Hillel would have, fit in, would, have, would have fit very well in 2024. Why? Because we still have that same air that we breathe. If you fall out of love, get divorced. If you've fallen in love with someone else, get divorced. If it's just not working out, get divorced. See, we as humans have always looked for the easy way out. And it's almost as if the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to say, what school of thought are you a part of, Jesus? But he is not playing their games. He responds with a very clear statement in verse five. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, divorce was not a part of the original plan. Then Jesus does something interesting. Notice you didn't miss the part in the Bible where he, he, he talks about divorce. In fact, he doesn't talk about divorce. He doesn't say, well, let's bring the couple together and do a pros and cons list and see where we're at. He doesn't say, let's get all parties involved and maybe some lawyers and see if divorce is in the future. No, he doesn't talk about divorce at all. Rather than talking about divorce, he talks about God's design for marriage. Look at it in verse 6. But from the beginning, this is Jesus talking, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Using these verses as a starting point, I want to give us three truths for today. I want to do what Jesus did. And before we talk about divorce, talk about God's design for marriage. Three truths for today. Number one, God has a design for marriage. God has a design for marriage. We need to understand this as a foundation of today. Marriage is God's idea. It's not a human idea or a governmental idea. God instituted marriage. There's a lot of texts we could go to, but I thought we'd go all the way back to the beginning, to the first marriage. Look at it in Genesis chapter 1. This is the first marriage. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we just read is the first marriage. And what we come to understand throughout the word of God is that marriage is the foundation of society as we know it. We live in a world made up of nations. 
Nations made up of states, states made up of cities, cities made up of communities, and communities made up of families that are founded upon marriage. If we don't have marriage, we don't have a society, and then where would our world be? In fact, every culture on the planet has marriage rites and rituals. Why? Because marriage is in the framework and the foundation of what it means to be human. God created us for relationship. I love how Pastor Tim Keller said it. He said, there's never been a culture or a century that we know of in which marriage was not central to human life. As all social history books will tell you, marriage had its origins in prehistory. In other words, the human race cannot remember a time in which marriage did not exist. God designed marriage and his design was and is good. That begs the question, what is God's design for marriage? Here's what God's design for marriage is according to his word. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. What I want to do is I want to take that statement piece by piece and teach on these principles. Here's the first one. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Well, I don't want to take it for granted that everyone in the room knows what that word means. What on earth is a covenant? Just so we're all on the same page. A covenant is simply an oath-bound relationship or, or a promise-bound relationship. You see, we live in a world, and it's even crept into the church. Maybe some people here today, we don't look at marriage like a covenant that it is. We look at marriage as more of a consumer. A consumer relationship exists in our world, and they're not all bad. Let me try to explain. We have consumer relationships, and, and what that means is as I go to get my needs met, when that thing stops meeting my needs the way I want them to be met, I go to another thing that meets my needs better. And we have some relationships that that's okay. Let me give you an example from my own life and maybe yours. I have a consumer relationship with the grocery store Smith's, <laughs> right? My mom just retired from 30 years of working at Smith's. We are a Smith's family. I love Smith's. Listen, amen. She was in the last service. I'll tell her you clap for her retirement. <laughs> I love Smith's. I'm in a relationship with Smith's. Guess what? Until Vaughn's has a better deal, <laughs> Right? Then I'm going, thank you for your service, Smiths, but I'm going over to Vaughn's. Why? Because until this person meets my needs the way that grocery store does, I'm going to go to them. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do that in the way we shop and the way we look at certain things in our world. But how many of you would agree here today, I should not have that relationship with my kids. Imagine some of the neighbor kids are over and they're actually a little bit more behaved than my kids. I'm looking at my wife like, can we maybe make a switch for a couple weeks? No, why? Because that's not a consumer relationship. It is much, much deeper than that. Go even a level deeper. Marriage is a covenant relationship. No matter how I feel in the moment, marriage is a covenant. According to God's word, marriage is a covenant. That word hold fast in verse seven, it speaks of this deep covenantal commitment. This covenantal language is, is so deep. God actually says that marriage is a picture of our relationship with him. We're going to study this in our Dearest Place on Earth series. We start next week, but, but 
marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that we as his church are his bride. He is our faithful groom. Can we just praise God here for just a moment that he doesn't look at our relationship like a consumer relationship? Because if he did, he'd be done with Scott Worthington a long time ago. He'd probably be done with you as well. Listen, because we're constantly unfaithful, but God has said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. This is covenantal language. He never gives up on his bride. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Here's the second part of that statement. Marriage is between one man and one woman. We don't have time to dive deep into this aspect of God's design, but it's important to note that this relationship between one man and one woman supersedes every other human relationship. It supersedes the relationship with the kids. It supersedes the relationship with your parents. I, I, I've, I said this in the last service. My kids were here. My kids know this to be true. Why I love my kids so much, but they know I love mama first because I need to love mom the way I need to love mom so that I can love them the way I'm supposed to love them. Somebody in the room needs to hear this. The kids are not the most important part of the marriage. The marriage is the most important part of the marriage. Are kids an extremely significant element? Yes, if you're living in my world right now with four of them in your house, yes. But that primary relationship between my wife and I supersedes all other human relationships. And if you're married, you know this next part to be true as true can get. One man and one woman equal two sinners, which make marriage very, very hard. Amen? Amen. Somebody's like afraid to say amen, but I could say it loud and proud. Amen. Listen, the only people who think marriage isn't hard are people who are dating or, en or engaged. <laughs> like right now, there's some people in the room that are like, I know they've said marriage is hard, but not with us, baby. <laughs> Can I just say it as your pastor? That's a lie. <laughs> in six months, when everything wears off, come talk to us. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. It's a lie that it's not hard, but it's a lie that we are eating up every single day. Let me give it to you in a couple statements that hopefully will encourage you and probably challenge you a little bit. The world teaches that marriage is a temporary vehicle for my personal happiness. But the word of God teaches that marriage is a covenant promise for our mutual sanctification. Listen, nothing in my life has shown me my pride and my selfishness and a host of other things in my life than the always beautiful but sometimes feisty Candace Worthington, okay? <laughs> she has been a tool in God's hand in my life to form me into the image of Jesus. And if you're a spouse here today, I promise you, for better or worse, you've been that to somebody else and they've been that to you. Why? Because this is God's design. We actually are sharpened towards Christ's likeness by one another. It's hard, but listen, that's why he gives us a lifetime to figure it out. That's the third part of the statement. Marriage is for a lifetime. Jesus says in verse eight that the two become one. This one flesh idea is so beautiful. It's not just speaking of the sexual union within marriage. Of course, yes, it is speaking to that, but it's this comprehensive, all-encompassing 24-7 oneness. It's what one Bible scholar called the, the mingling of souls. It's so deep. It's so rich. 
On November 7, 2008, I stood before my family and friends and God himself, and I entered into a covenant relationship with then Candace Hawkins, who became Candace Worthington. I entered into that covenant, and what I said before my family, friends, and the Lord himself is I am no longer my own. I am no longer just thinking of me and my decision-making. I am no longer selfish in the way that I operate in my life. I took her hands like so many of you did, and I said those wedding vows that we've all said, we all know, but we would do well to remember. When I looked at her and I said, I take you as my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health till death do us part. See, church, we live in a world that spends more time talking about the cool pictures of a wedding than they do talking about the covenant promise of a wedding. And we need to remember marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It's one flesh. It's such a beautiful thing. It'd be like as if, imagine making a cake. One more illustration to, to illustrate this one flesh idea. I don't, I don't make a lot of cakes, full transparency. I like to eat the cakes. I don't really make a lot of cakes. But I imagine you're making a cake and you got all these individual ingredients that go in it. You got the, you got the flour and the sugar and the eggs and the, the other stuff that goes in a cake, but I'm not really sure about it. You make this cake and I want you to imagine you mix it all in and right before you pour the batter into the pan to put it in the oven, imagine somebody coming up and say, wait, 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 before you do, can I get those eggs out of there? I want those eggs back. No, no, no. Those individual eggs have become one with the batter. There is no getting the eggs out because it's become one. This is God's design for marriage, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And here's what we need to understand before we continue. According to God's word, anything outside of that is not God's design. And the elephant in the room is that we are all painfully aware of many examples outside of that. Why? Because although God has a design for marriage, here's our second main point for the day, sin has corrupted God's design. Sin has corrupted God's design. But it's important for us to know, although sin has corrupted God's design, sin has not canceled God's design. He still has a design and it is still good. That's why Jesus says in Mark 10, 9, look at your Bibles. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's design, his desire, his heart that what he has joined together should not be separated. Divorce, separating of what God put together, it breaks God's heart. In fact, his word is even stronger than that. In Malachi chapter 2, he actually says he hates divorce. Look at it in Malachi 2.16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I think he hates God's divorce mainly because marriage is a picture of our relationship with him. And so divorce taints that beautiful picture. But more than that, we know some of us from personal experience, divorce breaks apart families. And it's a painful reminder 
of sin that so has corrupted what God has made good. So here's the question we have to wrestle with for the remainder of our time together today. Is it ever okay to separate what God has joined together? Specifically, is it ever okay to divorce? Although Mark doesn't give us any exceptions here in our text, we use the whole counsel of God and there are other places in God's word that do speak of God's exceptions for divorce. But I want us to not enter into this conversation flippantly, right? Some of us are like, yes, thank you. Here are my ways out. (laughs) If you're thinking that today, I wanna lovingly share with you what Pastor Tim Keller and how he talked about these exceptions, how he talked about divorce. He said, divorce is like amputation. He said, it's the absolute last ditch option in a dire situation. Breaking the covenant of marriage should be as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. And I know you understand our culture does not see it that way. And there are times when amputation is necessary. But I think you understand a doctor would be a terrible doctor if the first thing he prescribed in any ailment was amputation. Imagine you go to the doctor with a a stubbed toe or a jammed finger and he says, ah, you don't need an x-ray. We don't need to give you a splint. Let's just cut it off. Right? That would be a bad doctor, bad practice. You hobble in on some crutches and I I sprained my ankle pretty bad. I think I need a wrap or, or a cast. And the doctor says, no, no need for that. Let's just cut it off. You got another one. Be a bad doctor, agree? No, no, no. Absolute last thing a doctor should do is prescribe amputation. But sometimes amputation is necessary. So what does God's word have to say about those times? Specifically, what are the biblical exceptions for divorce? I want you to know these will be clear, but this is not a full-fledged Bible study on divorce. We want to be clear and concise as we talk about what God's word says. And I just need to say, we believe that these conversations are essential. It is essential that these conversations happen within the context of Christian community with pastors and Christian counselors. None of the things we're gonna talk about for the next several minutes should be made, these decisions should be made on an island. We should not be flippant because these are amputation. So what are the biblical exceptions for divorce? The Bible gives us two. The first one is adultery. Adultery. Matthew 19, 9 says this. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I believe God's word is clear. Adultery is one of the exceptions in the Bible for divorce. That word sexual immorality, it's a word that means any sexual sin. When one spouse commits adultery against the other spouse, the covenant between them is broken. Without reconciliation, the marriage is broken. Now, that does not mean that it cannot be repaired. I praise God for the millions of stories that God has restored and redeemed where sexual sin is a part of the story. Some of you are in this room and you know that to be true. But Jesus says that when reconciliation is not possible, then divorce is permitted. Here's the second exception we see in God's word for divorce. Desertion 
of an unbelieving spouse. Desertion of an unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, I need to be honest with you. This one is a lot more nuanced. In fact, many Bible scholars and, and Bible teachers differ on their interpretation of this. This is one of the reasons us and the whole team have been grabbing a hold of the throne of God this week because we want to rightly divide the word of truth but we also want to pastorally love and lead you well. This verse is teaching that if an unbelieving partner deserts the marriage with no intention of returning, he or she has broken the covenant. So the believing spouse is then free to either seek reconciliation or divorce. I understand we're jumping into the deep end of the pool. But a key question that I know some of you are asking is what does desertion mean? When we see desertion of an unbelieving spouse, what does desertion include? As we've studied and sought counsel, I believe it can mean at least two things. But again, I want to say, these are not decisions and conversations that should be had on an island. I understand my own flesh and you have the same flesh that if I'm left to make a decision on an island, I'm going to make the decision that best suits me, myself, and I. And we believe these are family-altering, life-changing decisions. And so you need some people around you that love you and know you and love Jesus and will constantly point you to him as you walk out these conversations. So what does desertion mean? We believe it can mean two things. Number one, abandonment. Abandonment. This may mean that a spouse is physically left, but it also may include financial or emotional abandonment. In some way, they have abandoned the promise of the covenant. I believe this could, after much counsel and a very long road, lead to biblical divorce. Here's the second thing that desertion could mean, abuse. There are situations where the marriage covenant is broken because of, of, of abuse, where the spouse and or the children are in danger. And I just need every single person to look at me for a moment and hear my heart. If you right now are in an abusive situation, although I cannot give you a chapter and a verse that gives you the grounds for divorce, I can share with you as your pastor and a husband and a father and a friend I do not believe it is God's desire for you to remain physically in that situation. I believe you need to remove yourself physically from that situation. Maybe the kids as well, if that's applicable, they need to all go with you and remove yourself from that physical situation. And you need to get counsel around you that lovingly will show you some next steps as you walk it out. Although abandonment and abuse may absolutely be grounds for divorce, these situations should be handled slowly and with a lot of wisdom by trusted Christian community, pastors, counselors. Maybe some space of separation is in store, even a long one, to give the, the spouse space to repent. And when all means of biblical intervention have been exhausted and yet denied by the unrepentant spouse, the Bible actually tells us to treat them like an unbeliever. You say, put some Bible on that. Our prescription for that is Matthew chapter 18. Some of you know this is a, a text of scripture that helps us walk out conflict within the body of Christ. 
Matthew 18, 17 ends this way. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat them as an unbeliever. In this situation, they may have, in effect, left the marriage. And so 1 Corinthians 7.15 would say that the believing spouse is no longer bound. This is deep water stuff. A lot of brokenness in these conversations. But I want you to know it, none of it nullifies God's design. None of it nullifies his plan and heart and desire for marriages. But in his grace, God has given certain exceptions for amputation. We believe those two instances for divorce are adultery and desertion of an unbelieving spouse, which could include abandonment and abuse. But the question that some of you may be asking is, what about divorce not due to these exceptions? Jesus actually addresses that at the end of our passage. This conversation happens later, not with the Pharisees, but in the house with the disciples. Look at it in verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Family, this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. In our flesh, we want this to not say what it says. But we know from the whole counsel of God that other than the exceptions we have already discussed, all other reasons for divorce and subsequent remarriage, Jesus says, is adultery. As we round third and head home, I want to pastorally speak to a few groups of people in the room. I want to give you some pastoral exhortations as we close today. Today, if you are married, the first group of people I want to talk to is the people in the room that are married. If you're married here today, I want to encourage you to stay married. I want to ask you to, to fight for your marriage. Don't think you are above temptation, whether it's going really well or really poorly. Pray together. Take walks together. Do things separate from the kids together. Remember your wedding vows together, whether they were said last year or five decades ago. Fight for your marriage. In fact, we so believe in investing in marriages and, and, and couples fighting for their marriage that we have a marriage conference coming up that I cannot wait for. If you're here today and you're a married couple, I want to invite you to our marriage conference happening March 8th and 9th. My wife Candace and I will be there. No matter if you're in the high season, low season, or somewhere in between, I hope you will consider coming to our marriage conference. You can sign up online. You can sign up on our app right now. In fact, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to, to lead the way and sign you and your wife up to join us for our marriage conference. It's going to be a great time of enrichment and encouragement for your marriage. But if you are here today, like so many we've already prayed with in the other services, and you are considering divorce, I hope you've heard the word of God today. Divorce is amputation. Divorce breaks the heart of God because it's not his design, but in his mercy he has made allowances, but they are narrow and need much counsel. So we want to walk with you. If you're somebody that right now is close to throwing in the towel, please let us walk with you before you do. We got some marriage resources that another slide will be on the screen. It's also on our app. We got some people that are ready 
to give you care and counseling in whatever way your marriage might be needing. Even right now in our service, when we close, there's a, a care ministry table out in the lobby. We would love to walk with you. It's not just out there this week. It's out there every week to, to help and to connect with you and to get you some in-person counseling and prayer before you even leave our campus each week. We believe it's worth it to fight for your marriage. Second group of people I want to talk to. If you are divorced and not remarried, if you are divorced and not remarried, the first question you have to ask is, was your divorce within the biblical parameters? If it was, I know there's a lot of brokenness that might come with that, but we believe God could use you and your story for redemption and you could walk in a subsequent remarriage in a way that is healthy and good and we would help you walk with that with godly counsel. There is no scarlet letter on you today when you walk in this church. But if you are divorced and your divorce was not biblical, here's the counsel I would give you. The first thing I would ask you to do is just confess it to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. You don't have to look very far for his forgiveness. It's readily available to you right now. But would you just agree with the Lord and confess to him, receive his forgiveness. And if possible, I would counsel you to try to reconcile with your spouse. We've had this happen in our church. People got divorced and God was doing some things and they actually got back together in a beautiful picture of God's grace in reconciliation. If that's possible, we pray that that would happen in your life. But if that is not possible and your divorce was unbiblical, the counsel I would give you based on the authority of the word of God is to remain unmarried. This is a hard saying, but trust fully in the grace of God. Give yourself fully to the kingdom of God and trust his grace. Third group of people I want to talk to, if you are divorced and remarried, talk to several people after our last couple services. If you are divorced and remarried, you need to hear if your divorce was in the biblical parameters, then I believe, we believe your marriage was as well. But if your divorce was unbiblical, we believe your remarriage was also unbiblical. So what do you do? Again, hear my heart on this. The first thing you do is you run to the cross where there is no sin that you can do, that you can commit, that you can walk in that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do. There is no sin that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. So again, would you just agree with God and receive his mercy? Second thing I would counsel you to do is to stay married to your current spouse. Don't break another covenant. Confess to the Lord and receive his mercy. Pursue reconciliation where possible. Give forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and surrender all that to the Lord. Humble yourself and be an incredible trophy of his grace. Fourth, last, and definitely not least group of people I want to talk to are the people that are in here who are single. If the Lord leads you to become married, praise God, I've already shared, it will be one of the most sanctifying things in your life. If marriage is in your future, I hope today you've heard from the word of God how serious he takes this covenant of marriage. So you would approach becoming married with passion and counsel from godly people. But some of you are called to singleness. 
Some of you are called to singleness, and I'll just encourage you, if that is you, you are in good company. Paul the apostle and Jesus Christ himself were both single. You need to know that you are not a second-class citizen in this church, and you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom if you are single. Amen. I would encourage you just to give yourself wholly to the kingdom of God, trusting that he wants to use you in a very, very unique way. Listen, I hope you hear my heart no matter, no matter what category you fall into. If you need care and community, you've got questions, we are here for you. Listen, I know this has been heavy. Heavier for some than others. But what have we learned today? We've learned that God has the design for marriage. We've learned that sin has corrupted God's design. But here's the third and final truth that we just need to end with. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Amen? I need, us to, I need us to say that out loud so it's on our lips as we leave. On the count of three, say this out loud. One, two, three. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Listen, church, as followers of Jesus, no matter the situation or circumstance, we must live in light of the gospel because of the sinless life and gruesome death and glorious resurrection of our King Jesus. For every person who's placed their faith in his finished work, they are fully covered by his blood, every single sin, and forever freely forgiven in his name. God's grace is greater than all our sin. There's a verse of scripture I want you to leave with on your heart because the enemy is going to try to beat some of you up this week. Even right now, he's trying to beat some of you up. Tell the devil what the Bible says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, no condemnation, not from this pulpit, not from this church, and not from your God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. I know because I've already had several conversations this weekend. There's so many emotions that have been riled up. Shame, anger, frustration, confusion, and a host of other emotions. I need you to know you cannot out the grace of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, church, we must be careful to not lower God's standard that is clear in his word. But we also must guard against raising God's standard and forgetting his grace. It is true that God hates divorce, but it is also true that God loves divorced people. And somebody needs to hear that today. There's no condemnation. Maybe you've made some terrible mistakes in your life. Maybe there's been some sin that has led to divorce. You can't change that now, but you need to hear that mistakes in your life do not mean God is done with you. In fact, because of your relationship with Jesus, you have a promise from God's word that no matter the brokenness in your life, he's at work right now. The sovereign God of heaven is at work right now redeeming that stuff and causing those things to actually work for good. That's a promise. Let me show you in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Some of you need to underline it, circle it, do whatever you need to to get this in your heart. We know, we know that God causes what? God causes what? All things, all things to work together for good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. All things, listen, your divorce is not an exception to the all things. God's at work even in the most broken situations. Listen, the irony of this message today is that I'm somebody who grew up in a divorced home. My wife 
grew up in a divorced home. And I'm just sitting here, the third time I've preached it to a group of people that I know are wrestling. And I'm just telling you, I'm not just preaching that verse with some passion because I'm a pastor. I'm preaching that verse with some passion because it's my life. I've witnessed his faithfulness. I've seen him breathe life again. Why? Because no matter what you're walking through, no matter the brokenness, he's at work right now redeeming and restoring. Listen, my kids have grandparents now that they love because God's at work causing all things to work together for good. I've been shaped as a man by both my dad and my stepdad, not because it wasn't broken, but because God redeemed the broken and has caused all things to work together for good. I don't know who needs to hear this, but whatever your broken is, God is at work causing all of that to work together to get to a place where it can actually be good, even if it looks the furthest thing from good right now. No matter where you are on the journey, may you run to Jesus, confess what you know the Spirit is leading you to confess, and will we all receive his promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that we can all claim today, no matter where you are. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.